As we were singing, it dawned on me what a privilege that I have to talk to you week after week about good news. That there is good news that God has done for us what we can't do for ourselves so that we might be reconciled to Him and enjoy life now and forevermore with Him. And that good news is is something that we want to talk about every week. And the good news is uh, really explained and uh, enjoyed in the book of Romans as much as anywhere. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there to Romans chapter 6. To Romans chapter 6. And while you're... Um, while you're finding Romans chapter 6, I just want to, I guess, suggest to you that the Gospel has two sides. That, the, that this newspaper that has good news on it has a front side and it has a back side. There are two sides to this newspaper. The first good news, and we've sung about it already this morning. Okay? You have already sung about the objective good news uh, when you're saying Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Meaning that I am guilty in my sin, standing under God's condemnation, and I am unable to save myself. So someone outside of me entered humanity, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, rose again, so that something outside of me could save me. That is the objective good news. And it's really important that you're clear on it, that Jesus paid it all, you don't pay it. Okay, You don't do better, try harder, and somehow pay part of it. Jesus paid it all. That's the objective good news. There is a subjective side of it as well. A side that suggests that Jesus did pay it all for you, so that you might, and you've sung this already too, might hide yourself in Him. So that there might be this closeness. That there might be this communion. That there might be this precious relationship that you enjoy that you would be unable to enjoy were you just trying your best. And so, there are these two sides, you might say, to the good news. The objective side where Jesus paid it all and the subjective side where you hide yourself in Him. And it's actually that side that I want to talk about this morning. Because Jesus left for the church two ordinances, or you might say two rituals, two practices that we should do over and over, and the church has done over and over throughout its history, namely, the practice of the Lord's Supper and the practice of baptism. And even as you think about those two practices, I want you to recognize that, yes, when you're talking about the Lord's Supper, you're talking about Proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Recognizing, certainly, the objective truth that Jesus died for sinners so that they might be reconciled to God. There is an uh, objective side to it for sure. 
But there is also a subjective side to it. In that when Jesus left for us the Lord's Supper, He left for us a meal. He left for us a table. He left for us a familial experience of the Passover where the family sits around the table and they're close to one another and they're reflecting on the reason for their gathering. And He left for us this warm and close observance of the Lord's death. That we might not just objectively rehearse that Jesus died and rose again, but we might subjectively feel close to Him. That's why we call it communion. Communion means closeness and union. Well, that's the Lord's Supper. That's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about baptism. Because baptism also is a rehearsal of this closeness with Jesus. In fact, it's the perfect picture for the closeness or the union that we have with Jesus. And that's why he talks about it in Romans chapter 6. So if you're in Romans chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 1, read the first few verses. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So last week I did my best to try and explain and uh, and understand what it means to be united with Christ uh, in His death and in His burial and His resurrection. To be one with Him. But the word that Paul uses for that is baptism. We have been baptized into Christ Jesus. And so, I just want to sort of remind you why we practice baptism and why it's important. The first reason that we practice it and the first reason that it's important is that Jesus commanded us to. So if there was no other meaning, if it wasn't even in Romans 6, we would, we would still baptize people because Jesus' last will and testament in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 was this. Therefore, go and make disciples or go and make followers of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So, objectively, Jesus said what His followers do is they make more followers. What His disciples do is they make more disciples. And how, what signals that? Baptism. Okay, so we would do baptism 
whether there was more information about it or not, because Jesus commanded it. But in Romans chapter 6, we, we get to Romans chapter 6, and the Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter explaining our union with Christ, picks up the word baptize as an explanation for our union with Christ. I want you to see what he says there. He asks the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. How can we who died to sin live in it any longer? And then he says, "Do you?" He, this is the way he answers the question. Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? And so, baptism is the perfect word to describe this union with Christ. It's a, it's a perfect uh, metaphor or perfect picture for what God does for us in Christ. And the, the first reason that it's a perfect word is simply its meaning. To baptize means to immerse. To baptize means to dip or to immerse. And so if you were to wash the dishes in a basin, you would be baptizing the dishes. means to immerse. And so, if you read this text, you'll, you'll understand why I use this word. Well, before we say that, how, why, if it means immerse, why do we call it baptize, right? The, this might be more than you want to know. But your New Testament was written in uh, the Greek language. And the Greek word for baptism, are you ready for this, is baptizo. Okay, if you just sort of say that to yourself, baptism, baptizo, it really sounds the same, right? With just a little bit of ending, what you'd expect coming from another language. And the reason for that is they didn't translate it. They just brought the sounds over, right? From baptizo to baptism. And they brought those sounds into English. So the English word for baptize is baptism. And... That doesn't help us because it doesn't convey meaning. It just conveys sounds. And they did that with a few other words that they translated uh, into English as well. And so if you were to actually bring the, the meaning of the word across, rather than just the sounds of the word, then it would be like this. Don't you know that all of you have been immersed into Christ Jesus? We're immersed into His death. It does It does strike you a little differently when... You say it that way, doesn't it? I mean, this is why we practice baptism by immersion, because that's what the word means. But it's a great picture here of, of being hidden in Christ or being uh, completely engulfed in Jesus. I mean, we use this in other ways. We, you know, we, we might say someone who's, who's um, at uh, home, but... They're always answering their phone or they're always writing emails. And, and we might excuse that person, right? By saying they're immersed in their work. In other words, they are so much into their work that they're living in sort of a different sphere than they actually are in. 
Sometimes people use this of a um, sort of absent-minded um, professors who are doing research. You know, they're they're uh, they're scatterbrained in real life because they're immersed in their research. In other words, they're, they're, they captivates all of their mind and all of their energy. So we use we use the word that way as well for the subjective experience of a life that is sort of outside of yourself. Do you not know that all of us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus have been immersed into His death? So that to be immersed in Christ Jesus is to be so um, united with Him, so uh, really um, captivated by Jesus that He um, really takes up your energy and your thoughts and your mind and your imagination. You've been immersed in Christ Jesus. And when you were, you were also immersed in His death. So it isn't merely that His death on the cross counted for you objectively to take away your sin and to forgive you so that you might be reconciled to God. That did happen. That's the objective side. But really, when He died on the cross, you were immersed into that death so that it counts for you. So that your experience then of His life and His death is such that it really counts for you. You are immersed into His death. And so, the simple meaning of the word makes it a really good uh, expression of what it means to be united with Christ and to be sort of engulfed by Him. The subjective aspect of our salvation. Baptism is a, is a great word to talk about union with Christ because of that. It's also a great um, word to talk about our union with Christ in the subjective aspect of our salvation because it is your experience of salvation. It's the first experience you have of salvation. He continues in Romans 6, therefore we were buried, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And there is this this picture of the, of the baptism ritual of this descent and this ascent, this going down in the water and coming out, that is a picture of this new life. And the first baptism we encounter in the New Testament was a baptism of, um, well, John, who got his name from that, John the Baptist. And his was a baptism of repentance. Okay, whenever it describes John's baptism, it describes a baptism of repentance, which means that it is a baptism of turning around. A baptism of turning. In other words, the first initial um, rite or the first initial uh, experience of this repentance is a turning from your sin and a turning to God. And so, baptism was that in the very first time we encounter it. 
And so, baptism is the, the personal, physical expression of that turn. There is, I mean, it, it, there's a, a formal figure of speech that we would use to describe this, where part of the experience, I mean, there's a lot. When we talk about experiencing salvation, we're talking about experiencing a lot. You are forgiven. You're justified. You are reconciled to God. You are redeemed from your sin. You are, um, well, in other places, you're sanctified. You are um, united with Christ. There lots of things happen, but all of them are invisible. All of them are things that you don't really feel like they happened. You don't really necessarily no. The one thing you do know, though, is that once you followed Christ and you were baptized and you got all wet and you came out, that you remember. That was your experience of your transformation. And so the, the part, that part that you remember, stands in for all of this in, in, in the way that he's talking about it here. Let me, let me just suggest to you that you're very familiar with this, but not with the word baptism. Okay? Some of you might say, yeah, last, last night I went to the symphony. Okay? You went to the symphony. That sounds good. Is that all you did? Did you just go and then turn around and come home? Did you just drive there, get to the parking lot and leave? Because that's what you told me you did, right? You just went to the symphony. You didn't enjoy it. You couldn't tell me the pieces that they played. You couldn't tell me about the instrumentation or the conductor. You just went there, huh? Just that first part. It's, but you use that all the time, right? For, I went to the game or I went to whatever. The, where this first part of your experience stands in for the whole thing. Say you went to the symphony... You would expect somebody to ask you how it was. You'd expect somebody to, to ask you all that went on there and who you saw and whatever the case may be. Because your shorthand for I experienced the full symphony yesterday is just, well, I went to the symphony. And so that's the way that he's using baptism here. It's shorthand for I experienced the full measure of salvation because the very first thing that I got was baptized. And so you're baptized and into his death. And really, that's what we, that, that's why it's used in Matthew 28. This shouldn't surprise you. Go make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, shouldn't they be converted? Shouldn't you uh, ask them to trust Jesus to be their Savior? Shouldn't you, you know, shouldn't there be some sort of faith? Really, baptism is standing in for all of that, even in this text. And so, in Romans 6, it shouldn't surprise us then that baptism stands in for the full experience of salvation, including your union with Jesus in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. So that your full experience of Jesus is expressed 
in your baptism. And so, that's the second reason that baptism is a great word, is that it's the initial rite, the initial experience that stands in for all of the compound blessings that come to you when Jesus is your Savior, when you are united with Christ. And then, that leads to the third one, which is that baptism is essentially the public declaration of your identity with Jesus. Your new found identity. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we'll certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. It is that union or that being united with Jesus that is pictured in baptism. So that this union is part of your experience now with Jesus. And again, you, you use these kinds of things, but you just don't think about it. It's much more common than we think. Um, I, have, I, I, I do my best to not use sports um, illustrations. That's sort of a self-discipline of mine. I'd not do that. Except that I've heard women in the church say, my ducks played horribly this weekend. Or my ducks finally got it done. And they say, my ducks, you know what? They haven't played a down. But somehow, they identify themselves with the ducks. Or you might be at a school play and you go to the school play and you you see um, you know you're with somebody and you want to introduce them to someone who has uh, imparted information to you in a classroom space and so you would say this is my teacher okay that person is an authority over you and you're claiming that they What are you actually saying? My teacher. You're saying, I identify with this teacher. Or I might identify with this principle. My principle. Or you might identify with some other person. And that's what's happening in baptism. You're identifying with Jesus. To be baptized is to say, He is mine. Let me hide myself in Him. It is a subjective closeness, the subjective experience that he's, we're talking about when we're talking about salvation. So what I'm, what I'm hoping as you think about baptism, and as we see one even later this morning, I want you to, uh, I want you to realize that what is happening there is a personal uh, identification with Jesus. I belong to Him. He is mine. I am His. We are united with Him in baptism. And that's the way that it treats it so that the outcome is we would no longer be slaves to sin. Because Jesus, the one I'm identified with, is no longer a slave to sin. And because 
because He is free from sin, when I am united with Him, I am free from sin as well. This kind of thing happens on the playground all the time. Okay, when, when two kids are out on the playground and um, you know, they get in a little argument and you know, the one then says, my dad can beat up your dad. Like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I can't, I can't beat you up, but my dad can beat, you up, beat your dad up. And I identify with my dad who thankfully can beat up your dad. And it is this personal identity that this little child is counting on to keep him safe. And that's exactly what we're doing when we identify with Jesus. We're counting on Him to keep us safe from sin so that we would no longer be a slave to sin. And so it's a beautiful picture of that. The Scripture uses it this way in other places. This is, this is one that's a little bit uh, unusual. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through. It's talking about the exodus in, um, uh, from Egypt uh, that takes up so much of the Old Testament. And he says, And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And my first thought is, what in the world? And then my second thought is, oh, well, of course. It was Moses who stood before all the people. It was Moses who stood before Pharaoh. And as their representative, uh, called down the plagues from God on the Egyptians. And it was Moses who said, let my people go. And it was Moses then who led Israel out. And it was when they went through the Red Sea, they were all identified in their freedom with Moses. They were no longer slaves in Egypt because they had been identified with Moses through the Red Sea and they were out and they were free. And so... The Scripture other places uses this baptism as a way of expressing freedom and expressing identity. This one's sort of simple. But as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. You might say that's redundant. But, this is certainly a sentence that speaks to your identity. As many as of you as play in the band wore the band uniform. Yeah, it's not, it's not that foreign of an idea. For as many of you as identified with Jesus, uh, yeah, He is now your identity. And so, that's the way that baptism works as you look forward to this union with Christ which brings freedom from sin and freedom from the past and freedom from that old way of living in Adam. 
Okay, and here in Colossians 2, it, it says even more about it. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. Okay, if you were thinking immersed uh, with, um, buried with Jesus by immersion, in which you were also raised with him. You can think about that. If you want to talk about um, that kind of being the signal event of your salvation, where you're identified with Jesus in his burial and his resurrection, that's great. But it's primarily identity. I am identified with Jesus as I'm buried with Him and raised with Him. Then it says, through faith in the powerful working of God. See, so I go back, I mean, I started off by saying the objective side of your salvation where Jesus paid it all means that I must trust that the condemnation that God would have had on my sin placed on Jesus. Jesus has taken it. So that whatever um, trouble I might be in, whatever anger God might have toward me as a sinner, that is all removed. Because Jesus took it. And now I can be made right with God and reconciled in relationship to Him. I have to believe that to be objectively free. And I encourage you to, that, that that is your signature hope that Jesus frees you from your sin, from the penalty of your sin, by His death and resurrection. But, but in the same way, on the other side here of this news is the subjective part where I actually have to also believe in Jesus in order to have this freedom from sin, the, the, that I might be connected to His power, His protection. So that my relationship with sin and Adam and all of those things now has, uh, has been changed because I am related to Jesus through faith. So someone becomes a Christian by faith and they remain Christian by faith you must, God has built this so that my objective salvation and my subjective experience of my salvation both require faith. And so ultimately, my identification with Jesus insists on it being true that God has worked powerfully in raising Him from the dead. Look at the end of this verse. This is why the resurrection is a non-negotiable. That Jesus was raised from the dead by the powerful working of God that I enjoy when I'm united with Christ. And I have to believe both in the objective resurrection of Jesus, but also in the subjective benefits that come to me by virtue of what God has done in Christ. And so my, my hope in, um, in going through the book of Romans for you and in ha- encouraging you to study it, encouraging you to talk about it in your life group, my my goal in that is that you will get more and more clear and more and more certain in your faith 
that when Jesus died on the cross for your sin, He took uh, the, the wrath of God and He gave you the righteousness of God so that you might uh, be completely forgiven and completely reconciled to God and completely accepted by Him and completely secure for all of eternity. I want that for you. But that's not the only reason. We're going through Romans so that you also understand that that objective part is absolutely a must, but so that in our talking about it, in our meditating on it, in our thinking about being united with Jesus, we begin to enjoy more freedom than we had before. We enjoy more love uh, from God being poured out in our, in our hearts through the Holy Spirit than we, than we did before. So that we are more certain of our future and the, the new quality of life in Jesus than we were before. I want both of those for you. And really, it is, it is baptism that is a perfect picture of both. And so, that's the word that he uses in Romans chapter 6. And so, I want to encourage you to... I mean, we're going to see baptism in a moment. But the, the you know, even as you witness a baptism, I want you to kind of work back through uh, Romans six and just enjoy your union with Jesus and the freedom that's purchased for you because of it, and to be certain that that applies to you. And so, will you just join me as we pray? Let me let me pray for us, Father. The beautiful thing about this is that there, there isn't anything for us to do except believe You. There aren't six steps or uh, a program to work or anything like that. There's simply the work done by Jesus that we need to believe and then we need to believe that we're united to Him. So God, we believe. Would You help our unbelief? It is really that we need more of Jesus here. And so I ask that you would help us to trust him. And we'll thank you in his name. Amen.